0: Thank you. Hello. Well, it's 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 winter still, isn't it? I, I, I'm sure I I've, I've shared this idea with you that February is the longest month of the year. It starts somewhere in the middle of January and goes right on through till April. I don't get Oy.
1: it. I don't get it.
0: <laughs> well, Homer, Homer ponder it. You'll get it. But we'll pray. And that might help Homer to get what I mean. It's a long month. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. You know, it's just I, I'm more and more aware as I get older that that um, you know what Saint Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians is true. It's not against flesh and blood we war, but against powers and principalities. And you know, I, I think in the church so often we just you know we don't we don't remember that that we're in a great spiritual warfare, um, and we are you know, that, that uh, we worry about the, the fundraising and the programs and the, and the, 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 the meetings and the, and the, 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 the special uh, projects that we have in the parish and the religious, those are all important. But unless we really are equipped with the full armor of God, as St. Paul tells us in Ephesians, we're not going to do well at this. I don't know why I'm thinking of that. Just a reminder, if you are on some parish committee, Uh, or you work in the parish office or in the chancery office, stay prayed up because uh, the devil does his best work by not letting you know he's doing it. All right, well, that I don't know why I'm saying that. Thus says the Lord, I hope. Let's go to the big book on the coffee table. All right, I have shared with you over the past week, about the letter to the Hebrews, maybe a little more than the past week, that this is a very, very rabbinical way of thinking, very Talmudic. Uh, so uh, it's important to realize that the the Torah, when I say Torah, you, you you know that I mean the first five books of the Bible, what we used to call the Pentateuch, what the Jews at the time of Jesus called the law, you know, the the whole Bible isn't the law, just the five books of Moses. So, it's almost as important, almost as important in the Torah is what is not said as what is said. In other words, uh, what's what's an example of, of something that's not said? Life after death and the resurrection are not mentioned in the Torah. So, that means that as a Jew, you don't have to believe they exist. Someone now, most Orthodox Jews I know believe in heaven and and uh, judgment and life after death, but you don't have to to be a, a a a Jew in good standing. That's kind of interesting. So, what is not said in a certain sense is as important as what is said. I shared that example of Rabbi Levkovitz. Uh, uh, telling me that Abraham kept kosher uh, even before the law was delivered on Mount Sinai. And I said, where does it say that in the Torah? Because that's what Rabbi Lefkowitz is always, was always saying to me, may he rest in peace. Um, and he talked about Abraham and the uh, uh, the three strangers who predicted the birth of of Isaac. And he brought meat and milk to them, which, of course, is not kosher and the text but the text didn't say that abraham ate it thus abraham it doesn't say abraham ate non kosher therefore abraham must have kept kosher this is a way we don't think but it is a, a rabbinical way of thinking and it there's a certain precision to it so what's going on as i've been saying in the letter of the hebrews is the uh, the problems with jesus messiahship as as uh, torah um uh, uh, would 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 uh, would expect the Torah had uh, certain messianic expectations and Jesus did more than than these expectations uh Rabbi Lefkowitz was of pointing out to me that the Torah doesn't mention a priest king messiah doesn't mention a a dying rising messiah doesn't mention the messiah being a sacrifice for sin in fact is this idea this idea is so un-Jewish as to as to as to just repel Jews. Seriously, the idea of human sacrifice? That's just, well, one can point out, not as repulsive as you think. Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, but he didn't. No, but he would have. So this this kind of argument about, about these things that aren't in Torah, what we see today is the author of the letter to the Hebrews uh, talking about... Um, Um, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. Well, we start out with the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. For a Jew, the law, the Torah, is everything for an Orthodox Jew. It's everything. Uh, I've I've known a number of Orthodox Jews who, practically speaking, have, have the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. Not as a, a, a sort of memory exercise, but just because it is the thread work of their life. So uh, this is, this is a, a, a big thing that's said here. The law, the Torah, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of them. So it cannot make perfect those who come to worship by the same sacrifices that they offer continually each year. Whoa, the author is saying that the Torah itself is a shadow of the good things to come. This was a huge thing. We discussed, um, uh, as Rabbi Lefkitz and I would discuss this sort of thing, that he, he would point out to me that... that um, um, you know, the Messiah is just a human being. He comes, he establishes justice, he rebuilds the temple, reestablishes the Davidic line, which, of course, he has to marry and have children to do that. Uh, and <clears throat> he establishes peace, and then he dies. We still can't eat shrimp, to which I would say to the rabbi, you're not missing much. It's all farm-raised these days anyway. But that was that, the, the, the Messiah, being a human being, had no power to change the law. And and I would search for verses in Torah to tell Rabbi Lefkowitz, yes, the Messiah does have that power. And the one I would quote to him would be, uh, there will be a prophet who comes after me, hear him. In other words, Moses was the lawgiver. Uh, 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 he would be called Moses, our teacher. Um, well, he was saying another Moses would come who would give another law. Rabbi didn't think that held water, but here is another argument in the very beginning. The law has only a shadow of good things to come. The law in its inception revolved around temple sacrifice, but the temple itself was a copy of a copy of a copy. There's a heavenly sanctuary. Moses was shown the, 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 Heavenly sanctuary, not the sanctuary itself, but on Mount Sinai, he saw the model of the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, according to that model, he built the tent of meeting, according to which model the temple was built. So this is a shadow, the temple, and, and therefore the law is a shadow of what is to come. That's, that's what this is about. And then he talks about the sacrifices of the law, or but a shadow of the sacrifice to come. You read Leviticus 1-7, to and this comes as a shock to people. Uh, there are five basic categories of offering. There's the, the peace offering, the thanksgiving offering, the sin offering, the meal offering, the grain offering, and I forget what the fifth one is, on the Holocaust. There are, I think, five different categories of, of sacrifice. Well, look, sin offering, that forgave sin. No, sin offerings did not forgive sin. You look at he, at Leviticus chapters 1-7, through and you will learn. That the sacrifices of the law atoned for involuntary, uh, uh, involuntary infractions of the law. So, if the people did something that they didn't realize was against the Torah, they had a sacrifice to be offered. The sacrifices were not offered for the forgiveness of sin. They didn't have that power. And that's what the text is saying today. Uh, those sacrifices were a yearly remembrance of sins. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats takes away sins. For this reason, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Uh, that that um, <clears throat> they atoned, but they didn't forgive. Now there was forgiveness. A person could repent, and he would be forgiven by God if his, if his repentance was serious and sincere, but uh, this may sound hard, but there are certain things that that uh, are so egregious that I, I have, again, I, I quote Rabbi Lefkowitz, there are just some things that should not be forgiven. You know, things like Hitler and the Holocaust, they're just things that, that are unforgivable. And that's, to me, the great difference, bet- one of the great differences between Uh, rabbinic Judaism, and Christianity. You know, everybody loves, everybody who's Christian just loves the radical forgiveness of God when it's applied to them. Think about it. You would like God to forgive every sin you've ever committed, and he wants to forgive every sin you've committed. But when someone has done something terrible to you, well, hanging's too good for him. Now, I'm about to say something which is offensive. I think the two greatest criminals, the, well, the three greatest criminals in history were Genghis Khan, Stalin, and Hitler. Those are the three that I think of. Um, they were responsible for more humans. So Genghis Khan was a was a huge mass murderer. They, he just extinguished untold millions when it took a lot of work to do it. Well, the uh, um, this idea of, of absolute forgiveness, if Adolf Hitler, in the last moments of his life, had repented with perfect contrition, God would forgive him. That's just horrible. That's just wrong. Now, if you are... Uh, how to say this. I've often told you that I think the idea of purgatory is one of the most beautiful ideas in, in Catholic in Catholic tradition and theology because it means after we die we don't stop growing. It also uh, balances the mercy of God with, with his justice. I have told you often of people I've known who died and been revived. I always say people who died and lived to tell about it. And many of them have said they experience all the pain they caused. Now, can you imagine? Just, just sort of a, a, play a mind game with me—that okay, Hitler made his perfect act of contrition as he lay there dying from his self-inflicted gunshot wound, and he stands before the throne of God. But then he has to go to judgment, purgatory. I think I believe purgatory and judgment are are inextricably mixed. I would say they're the same thing. I don't know, but that, that's sort of my, my thought. He will experience all the pain he caused before he can enter into the fullness of the vision of God. Now, I strongly doubt that Adolf Hitler made an act of perfect contrition, and I suspect he is where people think him to be, but I do not. I do not know. Uh, so that's the example. That idea of absolute forgiveness is repugnant to most of us, unless, of course, it's impl- applied to ourselves. <laughs> you know, uh, in other words, people do terrible things, hanging's too good for them, but if I did it, I know God would forgive me. <sighs> yeah, but you will You will experience, I believe, all the pain you cause. Now, what has this to do with anything? <clears throat> this, this is... Um, First, he says, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you neither desired nor delighted in. These are offered according to the law. Then he says, behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been consecrated. So uh, this idea that sacrifice, now this is not Torah. These are quotes from Psalms, which were very important to Jews, but they weren't Torah. So these are offered according to the law, uh, these burnt offerings and sin offerings. But then he says, Behold, I come to do your will. The author has already pointed out that the shadow is not the reality. The reality is yet to come. Thus, the psalm is referring to that and what the Messiah comes to do, the Father's will. And by this will, we have been consecrated to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What what does that mean well people say the offering body of jesus christ once for all that means that um, uh mass is not right a sacrifice of mass you know jesus was crucified once for all therefore the catholics offering sacrifice repeatedly i've already talked about that that it's the same sacrifice being offered continuously on the altar of heaven and and uh we participate in it. However, I really believe this is a Eucharistic reference. By this will we have been consecrated. What did Jesus say? Do this in memory of me. The will of Jesus, expressing the will of the Father, was to establish the permanent and perfect sacrifice of Calvary, which is extended throughout history in the Mass. How is it that I have been consecrated? We are sanctified by this will. Calvary was the will of the Father. We've been consecrated when we uh, um, participate in the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What is the Mass? The offering of the body and blood of Jesus the Messiah, once for all. In other words, this unending sacrifice of the Mass. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? There we go. All right. Um uh, let me just talk about this gospel, Mark, the third chapter, very briefly. Your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. Well, it's clear if Jesus had brothers and sisters that Mary and Joseph uh, uh, were had a, a normal marital life. No, these are the brethren of Jesus. In one place, they seem to be called the cousins of Jesus, James and Joses. These are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Doesn't say that they are the 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 children of, of, of Mary. In fact, is probably quite the opposite. We see in another place, the older brothers of Jesus coming to take him away because he's embarrassing the family because he's crazy. That's the action of older brothers, not for younger brothers, uh, not of younger brothers. And it's clear to me that our blessed mother was not the mother of these brothers and sisters because they would have taken her home after the crucifixion. Uh, she didn't live with them after the crucifixion. That would have been unheard of. She lived with John, the beloved disciple. All right. Let us go to a break. We will come back with letters of which I have some fascinating ones. And uh, then we'll, we'll have the word of the day and take your calls. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be back. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash UDallas. Building keeps on leaning, it is the truth. Oh, well, enough with that. Let us go on to do letters. All right. This is a letter uh, from some time ago from uh, someone named Justice in in Gaylord, Michigan, who is saying, you answered my question about the Blessed Mother's virginity, but what does it say in Matthew that Joseph did not have sexual relations with Mary until she gave birth to Christ? Hmm. Uh, This is a perennial question. I get it about once a month, minimally. And the word until is heos in Greek, which means uh, in the period intervening. In other words, you can read it. Joseph did not have intimate relations with Mary uh, or or did not know Mary at any time during the pregnancy. Now, it doesn't say anything about what happened after the pregnancy. In fact, there's a a famous verse in the Old Testament where uh, Michelle, the wife of uh, David, uh, is mocking him for dancing uh, before the ark because she considered herself a real aristocrat, her father being a king. And David cursed her, and and, uh, she did not have children until the day of her death. Does that mean she had them after the day of her death? And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture, same word, chaos, is just emphasizing that that there was no point before the birth of Jesus where Joseph and Mary had had intimacies um, that... that, the point of it being that Joseph could not possibly be the father of Jesus. And that was respected in the ancient world. There are all sorts of explanations for the, the virgin birth that secretly the, it was a Roman soldier, that sort of thing, all sorts of preposterous stuff that was, that was aired about, but they didn't deny that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. So there you go. Now I got an interesting letter about that's vaguely related. Um, there's someone, uh, a fella named Jacob, love the name, it's both German and Jewish at the same time, how special, the, uh, Jacob, uh, on one New Year's Day, the priest repeated in his homily that Mary was as young as 12 at the time of the Annunciation, the assertion vexed my wife. Uh, by claiming Mary was so young, she argues it minimizes the Blessed Mother's ability to understand what she was agreeing to and thus the gravity of her fiat. You know, I would have put it more like at thirteen. However, uh, the 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 rabbis said that um, the age of a, a man at marriage well, should be about eighteen. Uh, the age of a woman was when she was um, um, able to bear children safely. So you got to remember that people didn't live as long as we do. They, if, if you survive the diseases of youth, you probably live to 70 or 80 years. That's what the Bible says. 70 for those uh, is the span of a man's life, 80 for those who are strong. However, chances are you didn't make it to that because of infection, childhood disease, that sort of thing. So people tended to marry earlier. 18 for men and well, young women were married as soon as they were physically ready perhaps age 13. So I wouldn't say 12, but on the other hand, I've known some 13 year olds who are, we believe the age of reason is seven, that you can be morally responsible at the age of seven. Now, of course, in the modern world, you're not morally responsible till you're 40 or 50 years old. Most people think I kid, but, um, you no, know, they realize that, that, um, you know, I've met some children who are very wise and very moral, and I've met some old folks uh, who aren't nearly as canny. So, yeah, I hate to, to tell your wife that. I don't think it would have minimalized her fiat, especially because she was immaculately conceived. Uh, she had... Um, um, keen moral insight because she lived she had the the humanity of adam and eve before the fall all right so i hope that helps a little now let's see let me go on to the next one um i I, there's a uh, father mike hello father mike in california um very very uh um uh beautiful letter if I can find it where which one uh, uh, something that uh, that uh, uh, let's see here Mike sent me a very beautiful commentary on the mass and I, I had it. Oh there's the, some weighty music. Let me see if this is it. All right I'm not sure if this is it. No that's not it. That's not it. Well, I think Mike, uh, Father Mike, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 get, I'll get to it eventually. Let's see here. Ah, yes. Ah, here it is. Um, as a Father Michael Renier, pastor of Epiphany of the Lord Parish in Saint Louis, uh, you know, with the, the liturgical confusion we're in now, and and the limitation of of the of the old Mass, um, and Well, Father Michael Renier, the pastor of Epiphany, points out that that there are a lot of things that can provide reverent worship. I was in. uh, Oh, I was in North Carolina visiting friends and I, I can't remember the name of the parish offhand, but it was a beautiful, beautiful mass done. turned toward the people. Novus Ordo. It had all the dignity and beauty that you could want at a mass. I have been so many masses like that, so I don't know that the hunger that we have for 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 reverence at mass has as much to do with um, with novus ordo or vetus ordo. I know people; those are fighting words. Um, I by myself am, love both, uh, but. Uh, Father Renier uses Latin, Gregorian chant, other liturgical practices, part of his effort to provide reverent worship for parishioners. As a result, in the space of just five years, he has seen the attendance of the parish double by people of all ages. That's the amazing thing, that that people of my generation decided to offer the church of what's happening now to young people to make it more relevant. It didn't work. If we offer something that people, young people can find in the world, uh, they do a better job of it. Uh, it might be interesting for the first two or three times, but eventually the sensationalism gets more. I will never forget uh, when I was asked to say a retreat mass for a youth retreat, and there was a screen behind me. It looked like clockwork orange somehow, and I was supposed to time the consecration to fit in with this presentation of of rock music, and I, I, was, I was just appalled, uh, um, utterly appalled. And, and uh, um, it doesn't work. But when we take from the richness and the treasures of the church and we, we, we continue the thread that goes back all the way to the temple in Jerusalem, which chanted prayers do, and incense does and holy order those are all things we've taken to the temple and candles and reverent liturgical gestures we began transforming our mass at epiphany because prisoners insisted on it they were the primary motivators of the changes even people who at first didn't understand why the worship was changed soon came to appreciate it the call for more reverent worship came from all ages father renier said and changes to bring it about were made gradually. Today, not every Mass is what might be described as traditional, but each is reverent and prayerful, he said. I think that that is. So, Father Mike, thanks for that. It, it's, uh, it's, 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 the point is well made. So, all right, let's see here. Okay. Oh, now here we go with Shem. And, and Father Mike also sent me a letter about this. So, this is from uh, David. I think I mentioned this. I recently heard that Melchizedek may have been Shem, son of Noah. Have you heard this? And would this imply that the Catholic priesthood descends from Shem, thus from Adam? I suppose that would imply it, but, and I know uh, uh, Dr. Bergsmo, who's a brilliant man, a wonderful lecturer, and a wonderful author. Uh, I'd stick with him, believe me. He, if he says it, he's probably right. Uh, so, but I, I, I don't know that, you know, I think I said earlier in the show that, that the rabbis were very comfortable, or maybe it was yesterday's show, the rabbis were very comfortable with things that we would think contradicted. I was listening to Patrick Madrid today, and he was talking about the strong man, and he saw the strong man as Christ. And I said yesterday, I think that the binding the strong man has to do with the sin against the spirit. That's why we were in ju- juxtaposition, and that the believer is the strong man who's bound. Well, which one is true? Well, both of them. But that, that, that can't be. Well, you know, that that, again, if you read Talmud, which is a very confusing book, you'll have, you know, three rabbis given four opinions, as they say. And uh, these are all possible. uh, The the word, uh, the scripture is like a diamond. It has so many facets and each passage will bear a number of interpretations. So I, I think that that's, you know, this idea that Melchizedek may have been Shem. There were rabbis who thought that, but The wider tradition of the time of Christ, which seems to be reflected in the letter to the Hebrews, is Melchizedek was a type of Christ without ancestor, without descendant. In other words, he he had no past, no future. He came from the eternal realm, and that was a type of Christ. Uh, The author is using that typology of Melchizedek to show that Jesus was a divine being. Um, That's my suspicion at it. That wouldn't hold water for most of us because we think if a is b b is c uh, then a uh, is c We think well no c is more kind of a and b and maybe d together you know that uh, uh <laughs> funny funny i think it's funny the rabbi was asked once why do jews always answer with a question and the rabbi said what's wrong with answering with a question so moving along okay all righty then all righty then you got that all right this is about deacons and blessing you answered the question about eucharistic ministers giving blessings to those who come up with their arms crossed you said that only a bishop or priest can do that what about deacons well i looked it up and where did i put it i of course oh here it is all right no i lost it praise god i lost it but there i read a wonderful article about deacons and blessings and there are specific blessings deacons can make in the context of a baptism, a deacon blesses. In the context of a funeral, a deacon blesses, uh, you know, a funeral service. In various services that a, a, a deacon uh, performs, uh, he can bless. But uh, um, the, the idea of, of of blessing someone during Mass is probably not what a deacon should do, Um There are uh, canon law has very clear uh, indications of the the functions of of a deacon, and I think that that's a good thing. So all right let's see here this is according to canon 1983 of canon law a deacon can impart all those blessings expressly permitted by law a deacon may perform nuptial blessing in, in matrimony he may bless the holy water in baptism he may also bl- perform blessings in funeral rites uh, medals, small crucifixes, statues, or pictures that will be displayed elsewhere than in a church or chapel, scapulars, rosary, other articles in religious devotions. Deacons can bless them. Uh, it states that deacons explicitly may bless rosaries. Uh, um, uh, they can bless holy water, but only outside the context of Mass. So I would think the indication, and they can bless homes, uh, um, the, the, um, uh, things that are permanent fixtures in a church uh, cannot be blessed by deacons, and uh, th- those are reserved to priests and bishops. And bishops, a priest cannot bless cathedrals or sacred chrism. And I don't think a pre I'm not sure if a priest can, can consecrate an altar. I'm not sure about that. Uh, maybe he has to be delegated by the bishop to do so. But So there are specific things. So I would say in the context of Mass, no, but outside the context of Mass, yes. Um, again, I'm of the theory that, and I bless children when they come up because, you know, you just don't want to hurt the kid's feelings and, you know, but I, I really do think we have to kind of think about that, that, that the blessing of the Mass is the final blessing. And when a kid comes up with his arms crossed, you can say, the Lord be with you or something like that. But, you know, I've, I've gotten some blowback from wiser people than myself on that and well who knows this may be a development of liturgical practice as time goes along so i don't know if that answers the question but there's at the present moment there are specific things that a deacon can and should bless certain blessings that a deacon should give uh but in the context of mass i don't know that there is one uh if i'm wrong about that please correct me all right let's see here what time is it oh i think one more letter will Will work here. Um, let's see here. Moving along. Okay. This is oh, there are lots of lines open by the way at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. This is uh, this is a lovely letter from Patricia in Oakland, New Jersey, in connection with the question about the long lives of people as recounted in the Old Testament. As a young child, I asked my mother the same question. My mother was not a theologian, nor was she a biblical scholar. Oh, she's a smart lady, it sounds like. However, immediately without hesitation, she answered my question, saying, they counted differently in those days. <laughs> she was absolutely right that, that numbers could have moral and, and verbal values. You know, you say... Uh, uh, when Peter said, how often should I forgive my brother three times? That was a specific, had a specific meanings. When a Jew does or says something three times, traditionally, it's for sure. Third time's the charm. I think I've shared with you, you go to synagogue and you sit in the same pew three Sabbaths in a row, that's your seat. And if somebody comes up, somebody's in your seat, you come up and you just kind of look and they realize, ooh, they're sitting in your seat and they move, uh, Third time's the charm. Third time confirms things. A person was dead if he was in the tomb for three days, that sort of thing. So so numbers, they, your mother was absolutely right, Patricia. Um, they counted things a little differently. The use of numbers was a little different then. All right, that said, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day, and then we'll take phone calls at 888-914-9149.
1: Now, mama don't like no music played around here. Mama don't want no music played around here. We don't care what your mama don't like. Pick just a little more anyhow.
0: Mama don't like no music played around here. Mama don't want no mandolin played in here. Actually, my grandmother and my grandfather met in a mandolin band. So that's a shame that that people don't, don't, uh, they really don't make music the way they used to. All right, let's go to the word of the day. Oh, there it is. Well, this is a question that was phoned in from Angelica, from Albuquerque. Did Jesus have a last name? So the word of the day today is going to be Bar. Let us remember that Jesus, in his day-to-day life, spoke Aramaic. And I would say the relationship, Aramaic is and Hebrew are almost mutually understandable. Aramaic is uh, still spoken by many, many people in this day and age, Assyrians. I remember I had a lot of Aramaic speaking uh, parishioners. They called it, they called it Assyrian, but it was Aramaic. And uh, uh, the, um, when the Jews went off to exile in, um, um, what was it? five eighty BC, um, the the uh, to Babylon the common language was Aramaic Uh, and and uh, that's what they came back to the Holy Land speaking they had stopped using during the exile they stopped using Hebrew as a spoken language and there have been attempts to revive it and the most successful attempt is the current attempt in the state of Israel however the the Hebrew spoken in in the state of Israel has continued to evolve um, so it isn't exactly like classical Hebrew. It isn't that different. But uh, Hebrew was a, a liturgical language by the time of Christ. And at home, he spoke Aramaic. How do we know this? Because the direct quotes from Jesus are in Aramaic. Like, talitha kum, little girl, get up. Uh, um, eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's Aramaic. It isn't in Hebrew. So Jesus spoke, thought, and prayed in Aramaic. He also would have prayed in Hebrew. So, what was Jesus' name? It was Yeshua. Well, okay, I I have shared this before, but I think it's interesting, so I'll share it very briefly again. How do you get Jesus out of Yehoshua? Joshua is the name, Yehoshua in Hebrew. Yehoshua in Aramaic becomes Yeshua, but the short form of Yeshua is Yeshu. They don't have a Sh in Greek and Latin, so it became Yeshu. And you have to end things with an S or an A, generally, in Greek and Latin. So it became Jesus, which becomes Jesus in English. His, his family name, they did not have last names at the time of Christ. You had son of, son of, son of, son of. So it would have been Yeshua bar Yosef. Yeshua, Yeshua bar Yosef would have been Jesus' name. So they didn't have last names. Christ people think Christ was Jesus' last name, then no, that's his title, Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. So Yeshua Bar Yosef would have been uh, uh, Yeshua Bar Yosef would have been what people call Jesus. So I hope that answers your question. Angelica from Albuquerque. Let us go now to telephones. Hello. Hello. Ed from Nina, Wisconsin. What can I do for you?
1: Greetings, Father Rocky. No, like I'm not Father Rocky, uh, I'm Father Simon.
0: But go on. I'd be Father Simon, I'm that. sorry,
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. That's I'm all sorry. right.
0: No, oh, don't be sorry, I'm honored. He's a great guy I, I, I smart didn't one.
1: mean to demoralize you.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Well, what can my, I do my, for you? My, my comment,
1: yeah, my comment is, I'd like to make a comment to your comment about uh, Jesus with uh, brothers and sisters, the people mm-hmm. saying that he had brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. I looked up in the etymology uh, dictionary and uh, I looked up the word cousin. Mm-hmm. And the word cousin did not come into existence until uh, about the year, summer's right around the year 1300. So uh
0: well in, in English it didn't in English it didn't but it did yeah. it, words for cousin existed in Latin and i think yeah. uh, there is is there a word in greek for cousin but in aramaic there is not uh the, it, to this day in aramaic you have to talk around it is my my uncle's son so they just use brother and sister to this day my aramaic speaking friends of mine have told me so in in uh, some languages it existed I, it, it's a rather recent word though uh, I know that cousin in, yeah. in Latin was cognatus. I think it could have been germanus, too, but cognatus, meant uh, uh, cousin. Uh, so uh, you mm-hmm. could say a, a fraternal cousin was a patralis uh, in Latin. So the word existed mm-hmm. at the time of Christ, but not in not in Aramaic. So, well, thanks for the thought. I yeah. mean, that's, you know, it's oh, interesting. Just, we just wanted to assume, bring that up, just. Well thank you. No, that's, that's yeah. very useful. Uh, yeah, people people assume okay. that all languages work the same way and they don't. So well thanks for calling in Ed, no. God bless. Let us go now to Victor in and uh, where is it? in Pasadena? Is that oh no, that's Pomona, California. What can I do? Hi do Father Simon. Hello.
1: Hi, Father Simon. My question is can a lay yes. person pick up the monstrous and bring it to the side table? For the priest or the deacon to later expose the Blessed Sacrament after Mass, are they allowed to do that?
0: Can a layperson touch a monstrance? As you're asking me. Y- yes. Yes, I I I believe so. Um. Uh, um the the a layperson can touch a monstrance, and with permission, a layperson. Uh, now, according to the current legislation, may uh, 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 put the Blessed Sacrament in a monstrance and expose the Blessed Sacrament for uh, adoration uh, with, uh, with permission. It has to be done by an instituted acolyte or by someone who is authorized to do so by the pastor. A solemn exposition with the use of service and incense can only be done by a bishop, priest, or deacon. So a solemn exposition, no. But, yeah, to simply put the monstrance on the... uh, When I was a boy, uh, a layperson wouldn't even touch a chalice. Uh, But now, of course, things have changed, and they do. But So, yeah, if if the priest, uh, a sacristan, is setting up for a benediction and takes the monstrance out of the sacristy, puts it on, on on the side table near the altar, yeah, they can do that. Does that answer your question?
1: Yes, Father Simon. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. Gosh, that was a simple uh, uh, a simple question with a fairly simple answer. That's unusual. Well, let's go to Anna, who's calling from Henderson, Nevada. What can I do for you, Anna? Thank
1: you, Father Simon. I love your nice, loud, baritone voice that I can actually hear. Oh. <laughs> I have a question. <laughs> they, they were talking on an earlier program about the five press... Precepts of the Church, and they were talking yes. about uh, fasting and abstinence and that sort. Of. They did not mention that Friday was a day of abstinence. Is it still? Yes.
0: Um, it is. Uh, well, let, let's do the precepts of Church. There are there are more than five. You observe certain feasts. You keep the prescribed fasts. And, uh, well, yeah, the uh, the voice in my head is saying the catechism has five. Well, let's look at the five in the catechism. You shall attend mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation. You shall confess your sins at least once a year. You shall humbly receive your Creed and Holy Communion at least during the Easter season. You shall observe prescribed days of fasting and abstinence. The prescribed days of fasting and abstinence in the United States the local bishops conferences pretty much have control of that as far as i understand that they are wednesday of of ash ash wednesday is a day of fasting and abstinence in other words you may not eat in between meals you have two small meals and one main meal essentially two snacks and a meal and uh, nothing between meals, liquids are allowed. That's fa- what we, we think of as fasting. Abstinence means refraining from meat. So Wednesday, uh, Ash Wednesday is a day of fasting and abstinence. Good Friday is a day of fasting and abstinence uh, for, the, 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 for people of certain ages. Uh, and um, uh, the, the regular Friday fast, which used to be a prescribed day, of, of abstinence, that Friday abstinence is now optional. Penance is not optional on Friday. We have to do penance. It could be a rosary. It could be whatever whatever you think appropriate for you. But the usual uh, penance of Friday is to abstain from eating meat. But that is not a prescribed day of fasting. So, and you shall pro- provide for the needs of the church is the fifth one. So those are five... five uh, um, um, five precepts of the church. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I just want to clarify that yeah, yeah. Friday is an optional day of abstinence from meat. If you don't do an abstinence of meat on Friday, you should do some other form of penance yeah. or yes. sacrifice. Yes.
0: Yes, that's that's okay. exactly exactly so all right well good good to get your call hannah let us go now to mike who's calling in from austin texas mike what can i do for you yeah hi father um my question was about the parable of the sower it's one of my favorite parables Ah, and uh you know it talks about sowing the seed on the different types of
1: soil and whatnot and my question is well how does one go about changing one's soil
0: (laughs) <laughs> How does one? That's interesting because it's a parable and will bear lots of, of, uh, uh, um, lots of of, of interpretations. The seed is the word, and the soil is you know the person hearing it. How does one go about changing one's soil? That's a good question because it really does sound kind of like predestination, doesn't it? And and we don't believe in predestination. But Jesus is talking about the different types of people. And how do we change it? St. Augustine has the answer. He said the the amazing thing about the Christian mystery is to want to go is to go. The minute that I want Mm. to be fertile ground, I become fertile ground. And if I say I'm not fertile ground, it's not because God made me uh, infertile ground. It's because I want to remain infertile ground because I prefer my rocky hardness. Not referring to Father Rocky, of course, but my, my stony hardness. How's that sound? I got to call yeah. Father Rocky. I was honored by that. But uh, uh, so I think that I think Saint Augustine is the one who tells us uh, the answer: to want to go is to go. Does that help a little?
1: It does, Father. Thank you so much. God bless you guys over there.
0: God bless. Well, thank you and thanks for listening. We're honored. Let's see here. Now uh, I've got a call from Rocco. Rocco, are you with us? From Yonkers, what can I do for you?
1: Yes, Father, how are you? This is Rocco Drombetta, uh, and I just want to say phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal job. You guys are fantastic. I love listening to you in my car. I'm a traveling salesman and uh, listen to you all the time, and you make make me – you put a smile on on many faces, I'm sure, but you make me – uh, laugh quite a bit. Well, <laughs> in a good way, you. that is, of course. Well, good, good.
0: Yes, I <laughs> Anyways, hope so.
1: Father, I just wanted to say, being a, a name like Rocco Drombetta, I, uh, I am Italian, and I wanted just to say no. something about... Uh, You're Italian? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 German, German, like you. Like you, No, no, no. Stay Italian,
0: no, stay Italian. Stay Italian. In,
1: in, Italy, in, in, in Italy, I was born in Italy, we would refer to ourselves as cousins... Okay, when we are we Mm -hmm. we were like brothers, you know, we we were like brothers and we would use the terminology fratelli amongst each other, cugini fratelli, cugini cugini cousin fratelli. Mm -hmm. We will put those words together, cugini fratelli. I am sure that in Europe and and I'm sure as it extended many, many centuries back, that term was probably used amongst the apostles and and, and, and everyone else in the. Fratelli Cugini. So whoever's listening out there, there, there is there is a way that we can refer to ourselves as fratelli. I still call my cousins here, frate, fratelli, yeah, fratelli,
0: fratelli. Yeah, in Spanish, the same thing. They call cousins primo, but it's really primo hermano. I got my hermano and my primo hermano, my first, my brother in the first degree. So yeah, exactly. That, that, we have two
1: different mothers.
0: You know, <laughs> Americans have have uh, you know two point. Uh, 1.8 children, and everyone's got their own better. Not so in the old country. In the old country it's people right. are raised on top of each other and they're brothers. So that's kind of cool. Well, mine grazie, mine grazie. Uh, mille grazie, mille grazie. And God bless you, Father. God bless everyone there Father Rocky, Drew Mariani,
1: and uh, everyone, everyone, everyone there at Relevant you know, Radio. You guys are a blessing to all of us. and to well, Thank you. And in you know, particular. that Drew
0: Mariani exactly. guy, you know, he's one of the those italians too you know so god bless oh it's wonderful to italy you know why they, they moved the church there